the times we've rehearsed it and the time we performed it, the score is never going to sound the same. And I think that's okay in like a live situation. You can feel the emotion from the audience as well as the film. So just trying to navigate those two spaces has been like a fun experience. And welcome to Filmcast Pod Scene. My name is Nathan Platt, and I teach music and film history at the University of Iowa. And I'm Ben Delgado. I'm the programming director at Film Scene here in Iowa City. And on today's podcast, we have Alvin Cobb Jr., uh, band leader of the Alvin Cobb Jr. Trio, who will be with us on January 19th for the film Within Our Gates. And we'll get into his process and his history with music on the episode in preparation for that performance coming up, we'll also briefly touch on a few things that Film Scene is doing in the coming months in terms of repertory programming and some new releases. A silent film from 1920, Within Our Gates, is directed by Oscar Michaud an African-American who worked as a Pullman porter, a homesteader in South Dakota, and a novelist. As an independent filmmaker, Michaud made roughly 40 films, despite not having the infrastructure or financial support of the Hollywood studio system. Within Our Gates follows the efforts of Sylvia, a black woman who travels between Boston and a southern school for black children to ensure that the school, which is on the brink of bankruptcy, keeps its doors open. Along the way, Sylvia encounters a multiracial array of characters, some helpful, some not. In a stunning series of nested flashbacks, we also learn that Sylvia is a survivor of violence. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. The film has a large cast and intersecting storylines. As Ben mentioned, Film Scene will be showing Within Our Gates on January 19th with live musical accompaniment by the Alvin Cobb Jr. Trio with Julius Tucker on keyboard, Katie Ernst on bass and vocals, and Alvin on drums. Some clips from their other performances are woven into the episode. Because the trio's music for Michaud's film is only available live, we're going to get a sense of what it feels like to write and play music for a film that is over 100 years old. We also talk with Alvin about his musical background, how the trio came together, and why Oscar Michaud's film offers a lot to contemporary musicians and their audiences. Born in Atlanta and based in Chicago, Alvin works as a performer, composer, producer, and educator. He's collaborated with movement artist Ashwati Chanat and is active across media formats, including photography and film. All right, here we go. Thank you so much for joining us, Alvin, at Filmcast Pod Scene, uh, and for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Uh, we just want to get into a little bit of your musical history and kind of how you came to doing this particular project. You're a kind of a multi-hyphenate artist, working in different mediums and 
obviously primarily in music. So let's go there. Let's go back to your history with music. Um, of course, you've got drum corps in your history, uh, your influences from your father and other places, but you're from Atlanta. So I really kind of just want to see if there was any uh, Atlanta hip hop in your history. And at least for me, I think we're around the same age. That was a big music style that influenced my personal tastes, at least. Yeah, it was an interesting time growing up in Atlanta in the 90s because my musical interests weren't as refined yet. So everything, I guess I was more of a sponge to everything around me, but I didn't realize how much of a global event was happening just around me. Um, But I do remember looking on TV as a kid and a lot of the hip hop was so East Coast, West Coast centric. But the radio in the city was a little bit more southern based. So it was interesting seeing how accessible like these artists. Like I was born in the same neighborhood as like Outkast and all these groups. So it was just cool to have them within our arms reach. And then all of a sudden they're on this like huge scale. Yeah, it was it was exciting. Uh I was a little too young to appreciate it as much as I do now, but it definitely played a role in terms of just being yourself and kind of having a chip on your shoulder, at least from an artistic standpoint. Yeah, and were you uh, playing music then? Was that something that you were already, you know, involved in? Music was around, but I don't think I really got into it until high school. Um, my dad put me in drum lessons when I was 10, and I think I hated it for about five years or so because uh, <laughs> it, it felt like a chore and it was kind of like it, his dream that he had from when he was a kid and I was just trying to like play sports video games and watch movies and stuff so but once it once it caught on I definitely felt the energy of the city around um, so I would say later into high school that's when I really kind of focused on music yeah so you came to Chicago to study jazz at Northwestern and at some point, um, you started the trio. I think it says on your bio that you started the trio during the pandemic. And, and then at some point, you got involved with this film project, this really interesting, you know, accompanying of this film from the silent era uh, by Oscar Michaud. And so how did kind of help connect the dots for us? How did that come to be? It was kind of everything kind of happened so fast um so the pianist in the group julius tucker we went to northwestern together so he and i have been playing for close to 10 years and we're also roommates for like five years so we have a pretty close relationship and then katie ernst is the bassist and a great vocalist too here in chicago and i ended up just meeting her on the scene and um we actually were the rhythm section for another group and then i kind of when I wanted to start my own group, I kind of borrowed the two of them um, going into 2020. And then the shutdown happened. And so we would do these virtual concerts in my living room, um, kind of as a way to keep playing. And also, I thought it would be a good opportunity to raise money for a lot of charity groups that were on the grassroots level, uh, especially during the protests around the time of George Floyd. So me and Julius, like we did a few live streams from our apartment. And then our first live gig was actually the Hyde Park Jazz Festival, um, 
which is kind of like a joke that we have that we just had never played the show until this festival. But it was like an outdoor thing, um, and we were able to kind of gain some traction from that. But most of our attention came from virtual concerts. of the silent zone i've been working off and on at the music box in chicago for the last seven years so i've helped with some programming over the years and also some music events there but the gm at the music box ryan Ostrike, approached me about possibly doing a silent um he was looking to kind of diversify the musical options for the silent zone program so it kind of fell into place pretty well we worked with uh Chicago Film Society. Um, I really give it to Ryan for kind of putting this into motion because I really had no intention of doing the silent. I was just kind of asked to do one. I thought it'd be a good challenge. That challenge, did it come before or after you kind of had your own uh, start in in filmmaking? You had a um, kind of maybe around the same time the virtual concerts were happening, there was um, the short that you collaborated on, the the dance kind of piece? I guess that was like my way of practicing, but I never really made the connection until after the silent was done. But um, yeah, those shorts with the short stage and that was a great um, movement artist here. That was kind of my first time diving into that world. The silent film, you kind of have to approach it differently and like something that's pre-recorded so it was a a different process but i was really inspired by max troach who did his own like solo drum score to another one of oscar michelle's films um so that was kind of like my real inspiration and kind of guide for this one he's like my musical hero like he's my favorite drummer and also he was an activist um especially during like the civil rights movement. Yeah, he did a solo drum score to Symbol of the Young Concord. It's just amazing how well he's the drums as like a melodic instrument to like sustain for such a long time. And like the way he uses silences for like the very heavy scenes and it just showed like how creative scoring could be. seems like there's a handful of jazz musicians that are working with silent film, which I think is really cool. I think with jazz, we tend to think of, you know, like freedom and improvisation, right? And with accompanying film, there's oftentimes an expectation of like trying to make it match up with what's happening on the screen in some way. And so what's that like for, for you or for your trio? Like, is there still room for improvisation or does it have to be sort of more scripted, I guess? I, can you tell us just a little about that? So the score took about two months but it was only about two weeks of actual writing like two or three weeks of actual writing and i think my process was i would just play the film on silent and then just shuffle through all types of music like regardless of genre to see if anything matched up like emotion wise with it so in the beginning i was listening to like classical hip-hop jazz folk music 
just to get a bunch of different sounds into my ear. And then because of the instrumentation, we kind of eventually I would just shuffle through like different trio groups. So like Ahmad Jamal and Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans, a bunch of different groups. So once I started actually writing, that's when I checked out some other scores that had been done to the film, just to get a perspective. Um, the ones I found, uh, especially on Criterion, they have, I think, TJ Spooky's Kino Now score, and then Wycliffe Gordon, like a great trombonist, did a score, but he, he did like a full orchestra. So um, luckily the instrumentation was different. So I like wasn't copying, but just got a few notes from them. But the way I kind of went about it is the themes for the characters are composed, but those themes can be repeated. And once they're repeated, the themes kind of dissolve into improvisatory moments. So I always tell like the two other people in the group, like the film is the conductor. So I'm less worried about you hitting the exact moments on the score as much as I am responding to what the characters are doing. Since I wrote it, I'm kind of the conductor. So I'll kind of throw in some, some moments to like, Hey, here's the next section, but I'm more worried about the emotion. So. The times we've rehearsed it and the time we performed it, the score is never going to sound the same. And I think that's okay in like a live situation, but it's more important just to reflect what's happening on screen. Um, so improvisation is kind of our way of covering up any awkward moments that may come up. We've had moments in rehearsals where like someone got lost in the score and we kind of have to like, can't vocally say anything. So we kind of have to give give a musical cue like hey like you're in the wrong spot that's okay I'm like let's keep kind of going with this yeah and you talked a little bit about uh the music box and working off and on there i know that they do a lot of um silent movies with live accompaniment it's a big music box thing did you happen to talk to any musicians uh who do that there when you were working on this like any part of your process so the resident um organist at the music box dennis scott um We've had few conversations over the years. He's also been encouraging as far as telling me to do more scoring and performances in that space in particular. But um, it's been interesting watching him over the years uh, do all the silence, like every month that they have them. But he'll be the first to tell you it's easier when you're the only person um because you're a little bit more flexible but once you add two other people you kind of need mm, right. mm. a little bit more structure um so but it, it was good to get some advice and like mentorship from him and just even more than that just watching him do it and kind of getting some cues and tips on like what to do and what not to do in that situation so to kind of talk specifically about this film um within our gates so I just watched it for the first time to, you know, prepare for this conversation. And I was just really struck by how kind of complicated the story is. And I, I know that's not unusual for him, but there's a lot of characters. There's some really interesting and important subplots that sometimes you don't even know that they're going to be subplots until later in the film. There's this huge flashback sequence in the latter half of the film that has a lot of really um, powerful and disturbing sequences in it. How did you feel about the film? Like as you were sort of working on it, like did your, did your relationship 
to it change or has it changed? You're not just writing music for a contemporary film. You're like contemporary musicians commenting on a film that's now over 100 years old. And it's still like really, really timely in so many ways, perhaps in more ways than we would want. Yeah, I think I think to the point, I guess I'll start first part. Um, I'll admit I was kind of confused in the beginning a few times I watched it, um, especially the first time, because I wasn't expecting like there to be callbacks and like flashbacks and so many characters. I think that's where musical fans were very vital, because I think in the beginning I wanted this to be like this masterpiece of a score. And I think making sure musically the audience could identify each character was very important because like you said, there's so many and then people come back. So making sure like, oh, if you hear this thing, this character is either here again or or will be back soon. So it kind of took me a minute to kind of figure out the organic sounding way of doing it because I also didn't want it to sound too predictable. So sometimes we'll play a we'll play a variation of a theme later just to show that yeah, this character is here, but like more development has happened. But I think like watching it, I was just impressed about like how much social commentary he made in the film. Even though I kinda have to catch myself from critiquing from like a twenty, twenty-three lens of that commentary. But um I guess as I kept watching it, I I was just really impressed about his attempts to address a lot of issues. I know, especially it being a response to Birth of a Nation, like 1915. Um, I thought that was really cool. It's so interesting and impressive how many issues he's taking on, like in one film. A lot of it is obviously about being Black in America in the early part of the 20th century and how incredibly hard that is. And even that doesn't even begin to kind of really do justice to all of the other things that he talks about in the film and like power of memory, power of trauma, the ways in which place matters. I just thought, wow, this is so impressive. And like you said, also potentially confusing. And like as a musician, like where do you even start? I think it was just surprising. I think that's the best way I can describe my first watch of it. And um, I guess it's wild to think about how many of those topics are still trying to be addressed just in public and regular social life, but also in film as well. So it it was just interesting to see a hundred year old perspective to that. Slightly heartbreaking that a lot of the same topics are coming up again, but it was just encouraging to see like this ongoing battle, but art can address it um, head on. Was there any one thing that you were having, you're struggling with maybe uh, to get the the message right or the voice of what you were trying to balance between keeping it, say, period specific or appropriate and uh, modernizing what what the score sounds like? I think that was the toughest part because especially going from the development process of just going through different genres. I know it's kind of involved to super modernize like a silence. So I've seen silence with like punk rock bands and just a bunch of different genres. But I'll be honest, uh, we did the silent at the music box and I was working the event 
and I overheard a couple of patrons walk by and this was while I was getting ready to write my score and I overheard them say, yeah, I hate when the silence are too modern. And I, I don't know why that stuck with me and kind of scared me in the moment where I was like, oh no, I'm about to like mess this up. I kind of kept that in mind, but since the film's from 1920 and the drum set is from 1918, just the existence of the jazz trio with like bass drums, piano is still, is pretty modern for that time. So it really didn't exist at the time of the film. So I think we took some elements of like that time, like ragtime and like um, early jazz elements, but we also cycle these styles up through the late sixties. So we deal with blues, bebop. We're also playing like free jazz as well. Um, but I wanted it to be pretty grounded with the time especially with how the characters move in the film. It just felt like jazz was the best like avenue to get these thoughts across. And although 80 minutes is short for a film for like a show, stam stamina becomes an issue. And I think the first rehearsal, I was pretty gassed. I think that's the difficult part of like, how do you keep yourself and then two other people engaged for 80 minutes? Because after a while, it kind of is easy to kind of zone out. Or it's just easy to watch the movie and forget, like, your job is to actually score it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would say, like, just making sure you staying grounded sound-wise was, like, the first step. And then making sure you're staying engaged and um, for the entirety of the song. Because not to give the score away, but uh, my role in the score kind of intensifies this music as the movie goes, so making sure I'm pacing myself up to like the climax of the film is like something I had to figure out through trial and error. It's been a process and I like that it's continued to develop over time. So like this version that we'll do it, so I'm saying or might have a lot of differences from my music box performance. It's great to uh, be able to evolve kind of a performance musically because obviously the film is is static it's it is the one thing that's not going to change the image but as you said it's going to be a different thing at film scene and when it happens again it'll be a different thing then so um it's just an ever-changing process it's very cool yeah and there's there's some heavy uh moments in it it's just making sure we reflect that but i think the audience also has a play into it because I know at the music box, like we were right against the audience. There were some people that actually wanted to sit behind us. You can feel the emotion from the audience as well as the film. So just trying to navigate those two spaces has been like a fun experience. And I think that's something that we forget with sound cinema, right? Because you can say whatever you want in the theater and the film's just going to keep doing its thing. Whereas this is different. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to share? I would just encourage people to just check out more of Oscar Michaud's work because I think they'll be pleasantly surprised at how prolific he was. Um, I guess to do 40 films in a lifetime and independently produce your own films and like all the adversity he went through and to just create his art is an aspiration to multiple people. And I think especially um, for Black Americans, 
I'll speak for myself. I didn't know much about them until recent years. And I think there's a lot of characters in Black history that unfortunately get lost over time or the audience for those figures since they're changing. And a lot of Black people end up not even knowing about these people. So I think it's just important to keep his name alive, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do this project. Parts of it are tough to watch. I think it's something that needs to be preserved and shared. Um, so I'm thankful to film Sam for this opportunity to do it. That's very exciting. Are you going to do any more silent scoring? Is that in your future? So my goal for 2023 is to write a score to Body and Soul and um, hmm. some of the Unconquered, just so I can have the three surviving the show silence um, done. We'll see about recording. Um, it gets kind of iffy with rights and everything, but I do want to do more performances, uh, especially within our dates around both countries. So we're currently working on um, kind of using music parts and film scene as a springboard to just take this to more audiences around the country. That's great. Thank you again. And if you had anything you wanted to plug anywhere, our listening audience can find your work. Uh, you can go ahead and, and let them know. From January through June, um, I'll be hosting a residency at Andy's Jazz Club in Chicago. And every last weekend of the month, Friday and Saturday, um, I'll be there with my trio. And we'll be playing all arrangements of jazz standards, also covers of popular songs. And then we'll also be premiering some of my original music. So if you're in the Chicago area, um, it'd be more than happy to see you at Andy's Jazz Club um, every last weekend. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Alvin. And thanks for visiting the show. It's been really great to talk with you. Oh, definitely, definitely. Nice to meet you, mate. I'm done. Thank you for having me. Jr. and the trio, check out alvincobbjr.com where you can learn more about his work and the work of his friends. There you can find links to his YouTube channel, which has a lot of videos of their performances. For this segment, we drew from Alvin's solo at the start of No Doubt by Braxton Cook, the trio's cover of Outcast's Prototype, Tribal Dance by Robert Glasper and Lionel Luca, and Sunrise in Beijing by Christian Scott Atunda Ajua. We also heard a glimmer of Max Roach's drum set score for Michaud's Symbol of the Unconquered. You can find more of Michaud's films on the Criterion channel, or Canopy, or through the DVD Blu-ray box set, Pioneers of African American Cinema. In addition to Within Our Gates on January 19th, 
We have plenty of other great events and screenings happening all throughout January and into February at Film Scene, and I wanted to highlight a few of those right here. So on the 17th, the day after Martin Luther King Day, January 17th, we have a free screening of Ava DuVernay's Selma uh, that chronicles Martin Luther King's march from Selma to Montgomery in 1965. And that one, tickets will become available on January 9th. So if you're hearing this now, it may be before or after, but take a look at the website uh, for more information on our free screening of Selma on January 17th. And moving into February, I wanted to highlight Jafar Panahi's new film, No Bears, opening on February 10th. This Iranian filmmaker has been making films since 2010, despite being banned by the government. And this one, as others, he plays a version of himself. He's directing a film within this film and gets embroiled in a local scandal, so to speak. He may or may not have taken a picture of a couple just in his daily life and is being interrogated by the community in which he's living in for that photo. Again, it's reflexive of his personal life in that he is also worried about crossing borders. He's banned from leaving the country, and he's in this film on the border of Iran and Turkey. And currently, as we record this, he's actually in jail uh, for speaking out against the arrest and jail of his fellow artists, including Hamid Rasulov, who currently sits in prison for his work, for being a filmmaker. It's a common theme, unfortunately, in Iran. We have Tarana Alidutsi, who was an actress recently arrested for speaking out. We, of course, here at Filmcast Pod Scene and at Film Scene in general, stand in solidarity with these artists and love to champion their work in the ways that we can. But again, that's no bears. Like all of his films, it is also filled with moments of levity and humor, as well as some powerful messages about the state of the country and making art within it. And last but not least, we have a special treat for Valentine's Day this year. We're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Nora Ephron's Sleepless in Seattle. It's, uh, of course, a classic of the romantic comedy genre, and has electric chemistry between Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks in the leads. And this one is a special treat for our members. If you're a Film Scene member, this one will be free for you to attend. So it's a member benefit, and we hope everyone takes advantage of that. If you're not already a member, you can get more information about that on Film Scene's website. And we hope to see everyone there. If you are or aren't a member, uh, everyone is welcome to the 30th anniversary screening of Sleepless in Seattle on Valentine's Day. And we want to extend just one more thank you to Alvin Cobb Jr. for taking time to chat with us. His trio with Julius Tucker on keyboards and Katie Ernst on bass are providing our outro music. This is their take again on Braxton Cook's No Doubt. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Filmcast Pod Scene. We hope you had a happy and healthy new year. Please tell your friends about the show if you haven't already. It's the best way to spread the word. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to the show right now. And we hope you join us again for the next one.